0: How did it grow? That's what the first nine chapters are all about. This is where we are. We're growing in that. And so uh, we're going through as far as an exe- exegetical study. this What does that mean? We're looking at the Bible and said, what does it say? So we're going to go through. I'm going to give you just a, each chapter. Uh, we're doing one a week. We're looking at what is the, I'll give you a review. Then we're going to study that chapter a little bit more intensely. We're going to focus, and then we're going to look for some application. There we go. Before we do that, however, we want to start with our Bible memory verses because uh Disciples of Jesus know God's Word, and so every week we want to memorize God's Word, set it to our heart, and because I love you, and I know that it's been a busy summer, and you guys are coming into a fall, that we've just done one verse for this entire series, uh, and so, uh, but it's not just any verse. It is the Great Commission and the Gospel. This is the last thing that Jesus said to the church, the disciples, before he, before he ascended. So it's kind of important stuff. And so this is what it says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Aren't you glad to know that we've been called on a mission that we have already conquered? That is good stuff. Here's the thing. That is not just to be said and to memorize. It is to be applied and lived. That's why in your, in your bulletins there's a Bible memory verse card. Take that out. Put it in your pocket. Put it in your wallet. Tape it to the back of your phone. Go back to it. Think about what does that mean? How have you received power? How is the Holy Spirit on you now? How are you as witness right where you live? How is your witness expanding? Think about these things this week. I invite you to do that. It's a great will grow. All right. Now, let's get into God's Word. Acts 7 is an amazing uh, chapter. It's a heavy chapter. Acts chapter 7 is where we read about the very first Christian martyr. And it's kind of heavy. Do you know what the word martyr means? Witness. This is Greek for witness. A witness is somebody who has seen something that other people haven't seen, and they're called to give a testimony about that thing they have authority about because they've seen it. A martyr, we understand a Christian martyr, if somebody dies for a belief, so we talk about being martyred and use it today, typically people don't die for nothing. But when somebody is martyred, it says that they've, they've had an experience, they've seen something that apparently other people have not seen, that's why they're being killed for it, and they're willing to testify about it, even with their life, and their testimony is powerful. Today we're going to talk about, we have a new kind of testimony, we see this witness, the very first Christian martyr, Stephen. And Stephen we read about in chapter 6. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go back and read chapter 6. You can go on our uh, fundchurch.com our website and you can listen to the message there it can give you some some background for that. But Stephen was uh he was an amazing guy. He was chosen was one of the first deacons of the church. He was chosen because he was well respected. Right? He, he Amongst the Hellenistic Jews, amongst the Hebraic Jews, uh, people uh, throughout, the, he, was, he was a unifying figure. He was well-respected because of his character and the way that he lived his life. He was smart and he was capable, but, but even more than all of this, he was a man that says he was full of the Spirit. That in his life, that it was undeniable that, that he had been touched and was being transformed by God. He was able to do things with the early church. In some places in the world, we still see that he was able to, to do miracles. He was able to do all kinds of other great stuff like that. He did have signs that he was able to perform, which is pretty cool, as God was establishing his church. The biggest sign that we find with Stephen was the fact that he was able, his, his life and his testimony up to that point was such that, that the entire Christian community could look at him and say, yes, this is a guy of character. This is a man of integrity. This is a guy that is good. He was a man who was giving his life and, and helping serving widows. He was he was out there meeting the needs in a very humble way for the Christian community, and even beyond that, he wasn't just saying my ministry is just to do good works. He was also sharing the love of Christ with his entire community, and then he gets in trouble for that. And so there was we talked about last week that old factions, and I see we we have these same things in our world today, right? where, where people align and create enemies based upon their race or their background or their socioeconomic situation, all this kind of stuff, and their political where they stand. And, and they say, this is my, who I'm partisan with, and if you're not there, then I hate you. And we see that in our culture today. Well, it was also in the first century. And Stephen ran into some folks that were fairly partisan. I remember on their social structure in the Jews that they had at the very bottom, there was these guys that were called the freedmen. They were freed slaves who were Jewish, and they were kind of the lower level of society, and these freedmen had, had something to prove, and they saw Stephen, who was a Hellenistic Jew, which was just a level higher than they were, and they have an opportunity to put him in his place, to make themselves look better. That's how we, it's called leveling, and people do this a lot, don't we? To tear other people down. And so these, these uh, freedmen, these Jewish slaves who are freed, have an opportunity to prove to everybody else that they are actually better than And so what do they do? They go and they challenge Stephen and they start debating him. And Stephen continues to show them in scripture, that Jesus really is the Messiah, that he really has come. And, and, and the thing is, is that he shows them, it says in scripture that he was able to reason with them and show them decisively that Jesus is, is who he claims to be and that there's reason for faith. But instead of listening to that, they chose partisanship. They said, we don't want to, don't bother me with your truth. I'm too busy hating you. And because they got partisan, they realized that their position was they couldn't just attack him. Remember, they were freedmen who would listen to them, attack somebody that was on a higher level than them. So they talk some other people, who are also Hellenistic Jews, who were in the right social structure, this to, to go and slander of reproach. And so they start saying horrible things about him in order to, to cast doubt upon his character, and basically to make sure that then he can be shut down. And it works. We have uh, all of the, uh, there's a big trial that is being held then because the things that they start to slander him with are, 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 are heinous crimes. There's two things that he's being charged against. The first one was that, that he was uh, going to be, uh, that he was speaking against the law and the prophets, basically saying the, that, that God didn't work through, the, the scripture doesn't matter and the prophets didn't matter. And the second thing the charge was against them is, is they were saying that he was speaking against the holy place, the temple. And both of those things would have been a capital offense to the Jewish people. This was huge. He would not be this upstanding, awesome person if he did these great things. And so they, they arrest him, and they take him before the Sanhedrin. Now, remember, the Sanhedrin, in just a couple chapters earlier, was already had a chip on their shoulder against what they say the followers of the way, the Christians. They were already upset with them. And they tried to shut down the spread of the gospel already twice. And the first time, uh, Peter says, uh, no, I'm not going to stop, and uh, you can't stop me, and uh, I have to obey God rather than you, and so they were frustrated. And the second time, they arrest Peter and John, and they, right, and then they say, nope, we're still going to keep doing this. And finally, they arrest the apostles again, all of them, and then the apostles again say, nope, we are going to, we, this. Jesus is real, we're giving a testimony, we've seen him, we saw him raised, this is real. And so they beat them and they send them. Then they say, don't talk, but they continue to share the gospel. And now the faith continues to grow. And we see that it's growing so much that even priests are joining the church. The Sanhedrin was upset. They had tried already to stop the growth of the faith in Jerusalem. And it continued to grow despite that. And so now Stephen is brought before them. Not as one of the apostles, but now as one of the deacons. And they were already biased against Stephen before he even showed up there. But theirs is their trial. And it says, when they brought him before him in the last verse of chapter 6, it says, And all who were sitting there in the Sanhedrin looked intensely at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like that of a face of an angel. Right? What does that mean? Well, I don't know. I mean, I've never seen an angel. All I know is in Scripture, anytime that anybody sees an angel, they wet themselves and pass out. Right? I don't think that was the what happened here. I think that it's saying here is that he looked innocent. He looked as, as though as one who was. Uh, above reproach. He, he wasn't there. He wasn't angry. He wasn't there, say, you know, looking at the Sanhedrin with, with sitting there in purity and in innocence. And that's what they saw. And so then the high priest, he, he basically begins the trial. And this is what he says. He says, um, he says, uh, verse 1, then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? Right? And know that the high priest had asked this question before to Jesus for these same charges, denying the law, speaking about that about the prophets and, and, and the temple. And as a follower of Jesus, I'm sure the high priest was thinking, we got Jesus, we'll get this guy too. Slam dunk. And so uh, so the high priest, he asks the question, the trial begins, and then Stephen, how he answers, he gives testimony. He has a different kind of witness. But Stephen actually, instead of answering in defense of himself, he actually puts the court itself on trial. And he says to them, he puts them in, in the seat of defendants. And he calls four witnesses himself to testify. And the four witnesses that that Stephen calls up are four of the most respected witnesses for all of the Jewish people. The first one he calls up is Father Abraham. The next he calls up is Joseph. The next one he calls is Moses, the giver of the law. And lastly, he calls the holy place itself to testify. And after Stephen then makes this this incredible case, which we'll read here, he then charges his accusers of idolatry and say, you are, you're guilty of what you are charging me of. And he gives them an opportunity to change, but then they don't. They choose fear, selfishness. They choose their own partisanship. They choose power. And by mob, they execute him. But even at his stoning, Stephen's testimony is not done. Even as he's being executed, Stephen demonstrates innocence. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't call curses upon those who are assaulting him. In fact, he prays for those who are persecuting him just like Jesus had. He also has an opportunity to see through the veil and to heaven, and he sees Jesus standing by the throne. Now, for us, that doesn't mean a whole lot, but to understand in the ancient world, a judge, when he was going to render verdict, would stand. And Jesus stands at the end of this trial... And vindicates Stephen. The God of all stands and vindicates him, and the testimony that he has, his witness was good and it was true. The very last verse that we find in this uh, this chapter is we find that there was, and uh, he becomes an important character, uh, moving ahead. So, let's go into Stephen's speech. That's that's the overview of the chapter, right? Let's focus on Stephen's speech today, right? What happens there? Stephen's speech, he makes three major points. He calls four witnesses, but he makes three points with these four witnesses. The first point that he makes is that God is not confined to any holy space or any holy land. That God is not confined to space. (laughs) The second point that he makes is that worshiping anything other than God is idolatry. Even good things. Worshiping anything other than God is idolatry. The third point that he makes is that Israel has a long history of getting both of those things wrong. Of course, when to do that, he calls his four witnesses, and so we'll begin with that. The first witness that that, uh, we find being brought to the the stand is Abraham himself, the very father of the Jews. Starting in verse 2, he says this, brothers and fathers, listen to me, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land that I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and he settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to the land where you and I are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at the time Abraham had no child. Now think of this. This is a promise that God speaks to Abraham. Where did God speak to Abraham? Mesopotamia. Babylon. He was not in the Holy Land. God called Abraham even when he wasn't in the Holy Land. You know what that means? That sometimes God is not confined to just work in the Holy Land. And get this, he says, Leave the land of your fathers. Was Abraham a Jew? No, no, he was the start of that. He wasn't part of a holy people. You think God can work in non holy spaces with non holy people to do holy things? And the very first person who would testify to that is Abraham himself. And he said, you know what? God spoke to me even when I was out there. And even at this, Abraham, he lived most of his life outside of the Holy Land. Did you get that? He said, if his life wasn't even spent in the Holy Land, this is the guy who was called to it. And even when he was there, he didn't own any of it. That God was not confined to, to just a holy space. That's the point. And he begins to build from this. We move from Abraham. Abraham was given also a promise. We see the next verse that his people would then be taken to Egypt in slavery. God foretold this. It was part of God's plan. In fact, it said here, Uh, In uh, verse 5, it says, God spoke to Abraham in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nations that they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me at this place. And then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham came... uh, Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on eighth day of his birth, and later Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. So this is how it began. It started with a guy who was called from a land that was far, far away, it wasn't the Holy Land, a not a holy guy, and he was given a space, and he was given a promise, this, not that you're going to move to the Holy Land and stay there, but the promise is this, that God is going to give you this space, but first you're going to go to somewhere else, and God is going to be at work there too. And how was God at work there? Well, starting with a guy named Joseph. Joseph was considered one of the most highly esteemed of the prophets. Why? He was one of the 12 patriarchs, right? A child of Israel himself. He was, uh, he was called first. We know his story. He had crazy dreams as a kid. His brothers got jealous. They, they tried to kill him, and then they decided not to, and they sell him as slaves, as a slave. And he goes to Egypt as slavery, and through dreams and through God's work and through faithfulness, he becomes vice pharaoh, and he is able to save his people. God was at work even outside of Israel. amazing. And so God not only was at work in Jacob's life outside of Israel. God foretold that he was going to do this work, but that God also used the land of Egypt to save his people. Look at verse uh, look at verse eleven, I think let's see. It says, "And the famine struck all Egypt and Canaan." Being, uh, being great, uh, bringing great stru- suffering, out of his ancestors could not, uh, our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was no grain in Egypt, he sent out the forefathers, on, on their first visit and on their second visit, jo- jo- Joseph told his brothers uh, who he was, and after this, uh, Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family, and uh, after that, Joseph's whole family. Uh, Joseph, then Jacob went down to Egypt, and the, he and his ancestors died there. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for for a certain sum of money. Now get this. God calls his people, the patriarchs, right? Israel himself, the guy Jacob, who God changed his name to Israel. Israel himself, where does Israel move to? Egypt. Where does Israel die? Egypt. Where do the 12 patriarchs all die? Egypt. And where are they buried? Shechem, which is in Samaria. That is an amazing thing, that if you want to say you're speaking against the the prophets, against the patriarchs, to say that that anything, the only place to be holy was in the holy land, Like last week, remember we talked about, last week we said that the reason that there were so many Hellenistic widows in Jerusalem is because there was a belief that it was not only honorable to die in Jerusalem, but many people believe that the only way that you could be resurrected is when when the Messiah came, you had to be in Jerusalem, and if not, uh, then you'd have to roll through the earth until you got to Jerusalem, so that way then you could be resurrected. Like, that was a big deal. The patriarchs themselves, under that kind of thinking, wouldn't be resurrected, They not only lived outside of of Israel, they lived in Samaria, dirty, stinky Samaria itself. That's where they were buried. They lived in Egypt. They died there. They were buried in Samaria. God is at work at more than just the holy space. And the prophets themselves would testify to this. Jacob would see, he would testify and say, guess what? The holy God was at work in this unholy space called Egypt. And now while he's at work there, he was at work saving us there. In fact, Jacob would, uh, uh, Joseph would be able to say, not only is he at work saving us there, but the scripture itself points that, and he would be able to say, that God only saved us there, he made us into a nation there. How many people moved in? 75. That's what it said. 75 and all. That was all of the people of Israel. It was a big family, small nation. But get this, when they, they came down in, look at verse uh, 17. And says, at the time draw near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Oh, yeah, it did. Millions of them. That God grew his people even under oppression had done a miracle. That God was at work doing holy things in unholy spaces. And now, with that, he brings up Moses. He calls forth Moses and he says, all right, now Moses is the guy who then brings them out of Egypt right? That uh, they would suffer, that they were going to go to this space, but he also promised he would bring them back. And so he calls upon Moses in verse 20. He starts, he says, at that time Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, uh, when he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Moses is the guy who wrote The first five books of the Bible. He is a guy who God called to get the people out of Egypt, brought them to the place where he gave them the law, and also had him write the law. And so to speak against Moses would be to speak against the law. The very best person then to say that he's not speaking against Moses would be Moses himself. And he calls upon Moses, and he says, look at Moses's life. Was Moses born in, in Israel? No. Moses was born in Egypt. In fact, Moses wasn't just born in Egypt. He was raised Egyptian. He wasn't just kind of raised Egyptian. He was raised like super Egyptian, like Egyptian royalty. This is the last person that you would expect as a Jew to be used as a revolutionary. He had gained all of the wealth and power and everything going for him being Egyptian, right? Why would he revolt? Because God can use Unholy people from unholy spirits. God started His work with Moses. God started the work with the law and with the Bible. He started that from a guy who grew up in Egypt. That's an important thing. He goes on to say that that Moses, even though he was called by God, even though God was working, he tried to help the people, and the people rejected him. Now, when we read about the story, and and as uh, Moses uh goes and he kills the Egyptian. Uh, from a Gentile perspective, oftentimes we look at Moses, we say, well, that was stupid. You were a, a murderer, right? Because he was. He broke the law and he killed somebody. He didn't have the right to kill. So we look at him and say, but from the Jewish perspective as well in Scripture, oftentimes we, they look at that as, as saying, Moses was actually stepping up. He was doing what he was called to do. And the people didn't receive it. And so they had to wait 40 years. A theme that we find in Moses's life. And so it says there that, that even though he he stepped up and uh, Moses was originally ejected in verse twenty three it says um, when Moses was forty years old he decided to visit his own people the Israelites he saw one of them being mistreated by the Egyptians he went to defend um, he went to a defense he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the, using him to rescue them but they did not the next day Moses came upon the Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you, why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and king over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. Moses, the great lawgiver, grew up in Egypt, goes to rescue his people, and they got it wrong. And so he has to flee. And where does Moses flee to? Was it Israel? No, it was Midian. Midian, another place where a lot of pagans live. He lived lived with Gentiles, not in the promised land. And he lives there for a good long while. But while he was in this not holy space, guess what? He had an encounter with the holy God. For Moses, while he was there, after 40 years tending sheep and learning a lesson about humility and leadership, guess what he found? A bush that was burning that wasn't burning. And so he said, I'm going to check that out. And he walks up to that bush and God says, remove your sandals because the place you are standing is what? Holy. Do You understand that it's not that, 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 uh, that where he was geographically made it holy. What made the burning bush place holy? The presence of God, right? You see, where was the burning bush? Midian. It wasn't in Israel. It wasn't in the Holy Land. It wasn't on the Temple Mount. It was out somewhere in the wilderness in Midian, but it was holy. That's where God first spoke to Moses. And guess what? He says, not only did God hear or speak to Moses from the burning bush, but also that when after Moses was called to lead the people out of Israel or out of Egypt, guess where they go? Do they go directly to the, whole, the promised land? No, they cross the Red Sea and they make a stop at a particular mountain called Mount Sinai, which happens to be in Sinai, which is not Israel. Mount Sinai is where the law, where, where the Ten Commandments were inscribed by the very finger of God on rock, a very holy space, so holy that they had to put rocks around it so the so people wouldn't walk up there, right? They, they say that only Moses was able to, to climb this, right? When Moses came back down, it was, a, it was an amazing thing. It was a holy space. Why was that mountain holy? Because God was there. It's just special dirt. It's not just something God said, I have a rock out in the wilderness. i got a mountain out there. Come meet me there. God could have picked any mountain. God picked a mountain that was outside of the Holy Land because God is the one that makes things holy. That's the point. And that's where the Ten Commandments came from. That's where the law began to be written. And Moses then was appointed by God, and he was also but, but he was opposed by his people. In verse 35, he even goes there, even though Moses had had all the evidence of God's power, he rather, they, had the ten, they had the plagues, they had the pillar of smoke and fire. Moses was able to go up onto Mount Sinai, he was able to meet with God. All of the evidences that Moses was working with God, for God, for God's purposes, how did the people respond? Verse 35. It says when he addressed the Sanhedrin, uh, he said, Men of Israel, can, Oh, wait a second. I went back a, fa- a verse. Verse 35 on this one, it says, The time came when Moses had, um, uh, this is the, the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself, though, through the angel who appeared at the burning bush. He led them out of Egypt and before wonders and signs out of Egypt and through the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. Right? So Moses was rejected. His people continued to, to doubt his leadership, doubt saying, Are you, Is God really working through you? And then Moses says about this, he says, This same Moses told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. You understand what he's saying? saying, Moses is saying, all the evidence points that God is working through. If you had Moses, right? If we were Israelites and we saw Moses, wouldn't you think that with the ten plagues and, and the fact that, you know, all of the powers that Moses had, had through God, all the miracles that he had done, walking through the Red Sea, meeting on Sinai, all of the evidences, the very physical evidences that Moses really was working with and, and for God, that you would probably not rebel against and you'd probably say God is working with you and for you? Do you think that we would do that? I, I would like to think of myself to say yes, I would look at Moses and say the evidence is there, he's clearly from God, I'm going to follow him. But the reality was in Moses' life that he continued to face years and years and years of rejection you got to continually remind the people, don't go back to Egypt, that God is powerful. He's going to give you this land over and over and over again. So he's telling the people of Israel, listen, we have a history of getting this wrong. We can't be so prideful to think that if we were in that land that we would do much better. That sometimes God doesn't act the way we think he should act, and therefore we say that must not be God. And he's warning them, listen, be humble, Sanhedrin be humble because maybe god is doing something and he even says moses himself testified that there would be as a deliverer just like moses was a deliverer he would have all the evidence the miracles and all of those things all of the proof that god is working through him and yet he will still be rejected i think jesus had a lot of evidences he heals people from being sick He raised people from being dead. He was able to take blind people and make them see again. But I think the biggest evidence that Jesus was from God was the fact that he was publicly crucified, beaten and then crucified, and publicly buried. Two months from when this (laughs) earlier, he had resurrected from the dead in that very same city and left an empty tomb. That's some pretty good evidence. And he's saying, Moses himself could be standing here and you would reject him. Because the Messiah himself was standing here with all of the evidence, and he rejected him. We have a history of getting this wrong. That's his point. And he says, Rejection of the Holy One always leads to idolatry, following the wrong things. Verse 40 it says, They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. For this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And the same thing was happening to the people. He was like, when Moses went up the hill and, and went to the Mount Sinai and did this holy thing, where did the people turn to? Idolatry. To, back to what they, they thought God should be like, and they made a God that they were used to in Egypt. They say, we're making the same problem. When Jesus came and gave all the evidence, and then we reject him, we're no better. We're saying, make us a temple. Make us a holy space. Go back to the way that we think God should work instead of see him as he is working. You see, he moves from there and he goes on and he says, Moses would testify that God is what makes things holy. God is the one who makes a holy scripture. He can make it anywhere he wants. God is the one who can make people holy. He can choose anybody he wants, even an Egyptian or even a child of Israel who was born in Egypt. God can make a mountain holy out in the middle of the wilderness. God can make a bush holy no matter where he is. God is the one who's the holy maker. And we have a history of, of getting it wrong. And then he goes on to then, he points to the temple itself. He says the tabernacle could speak, the temple could speak. It would also say that maybe my charge of speaking against it is misdirected. He starts with this as he says that, you know what, God called Mount Sinai holy ground, that, that there's nothing magic about dirt in Israel. Do you understand that? Like Israel is just not magic dirt. It's not like God created the universe in Israel. He sprinkled like magic dust and said, this ground is special. The reason Israel is special is because God makes it special. That's what makes it special. And God can make anything he wants special. He's the holy maker. And so he makes that point. Verse 33, he goes in there, he says, "Uh, uh, Then the Lord said to him, right? God makes things holy. The tabernacle, by the way, when it was built, was it built in the the holy land? Where the holy of holies was? Where the most holy space on earth was? Was Did it start in Israel? No, it was built at Mount Sinai in the middle of a wilderness. Even God's most holy spaces are not confined to geographical spaces. Do you understand? That God can make anything He wants holy. Not even the Temple Mount was holy in and of itself. Verse 44, look what he says. He says, uh, Our ancestors had the tabernacle and the covenant of the law with them in the wilderness. It had been made... As, God's direct, as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. And after receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them and took it from the land, uh, from the nations they, they drove out before them. And it remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that, that he might provide a dwelling place for that God of Jacob. But Solomon was the one who built the house. You understand, even when, people came to, when the Israelites came back into the promised land, it was over 400 years before the Temple Mount was even considered holy. The, the, the tabernacle was there, but it wasn't, there was no temple. It wasn't even King David. Righteous King David wasn't even even make that space. It was, God said, you have to wait, and Solomon was the one who was able to build the temple. To say to speak against this, this geographical space, these, these bricks and these rocks, is a capital crime. Stephen is saying, you've missed the mark. You're worshiping a thing. You should worship the God that makes that thing holy. That's what we should make sure that we're not speaking against. Don't charge me with speaking against a temple. If I'm going to get in trouble, then say I'm speaking against God. Because there's nothing special about dirt, but there's something very special about God. And even that, even when the temple was built, the temple itself, if it could speak, it would say, I am not truly God's house. Scripture says this. It says in verse uh, 48, However, the Most High high does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house can you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? If the temple could speak, it would say, I'm not holy just because I'm the temple. If the temple could speak, it says, I'm holy because God's presence is here. That's what makes the temple holy. That's what makes anything holy. If it's going to make it holy, it's because God made it so. And God usually makes it so because his presence is there. The question is, where is God's presence? Even Who is being charged with two things, speaking against the law and the prophets, and he goes to the law and the prophets, he says, listen, the guy who wrote the law and all of the prophets point to Jesus. And the second charge is you're speaking against the holy space, and he says, listen, you're speaking against the holy one. He uses the, the very trustworthy testimony of these four amazing witnesses in Scripture. And he brings a verdict. And he says, You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors didn't persecute? I think that's an amazing thing. That's a charge. Let's say, these testimonies are speaking, and they're speaking not against me but against you and he had been found wanting. Now, why did Stephen do that? Because he wanted to be mean? Because he wanted to make them feel bad because it was him against them? No, remember, his face was like that of an angel. And even after they responded so poorly, even when they were killing him unjustly, did he curse at them? No, he prayed for them. Father, don't hold this sin against them. His motive in bringing this verdict was not to bring them to a point of rage, to just make them feel bad, to give them the one-two punch it was to open their eyes so they wouldn't make the same mistake that we've been making for a long time. So how does this apply in our life? The first thing that I understand is that God is not confined to the sacred. He says, like, we have a testimony, right? We're Christians. We'll be his witnesses. One of the witnesses that we have in Christ is that he is not confined to a holy space. There's not just the sacred space that, it's not like church has got like, you know, there's like a little glow here, and you come here, and then God is here. Church is a gathering of believers, and guess what that means? It's that God makes you holy. That in our culture, there's there's this false belief that there's a separation between the sacred and the secular. And it goes back to really the 1960s where we had this idea of a, an application of what we say, a separation of church and state, which is a, a political understanding, right? A freedom of religion that has also now been used also for a freedom from religion. That there's gonna be a space that church and faith should stick in and that's where it's supposed to stay and God's supposed to be confined in that and in every other space in life, that's secular and God doesn't belong there, so keep him out. If you want God, go over here. And as Christians, we sometimes believe that. But here is a secret in Scripture for you. God is not confined. He is not confined. He made it all. it, is. And He has chosen to make us holy. Which means that wherever you are, whatever you do, wherever you go, if you are in Christ, the very Holy Spirit that made the holy of holies holy, the very Holy Spirit that made the holy burning bush holy, the same Holy Spirit that made Mount Sinai holy, the Holy Spirit who writes the scripture and makes it holy, that Holy Spirit is in you and you are holy everywhere you go. Just like the tabernacle could wander in the wilderness, and the holy of holies was there. Wherever you go, there is God. There is no separation in our life. This is the testimony. We don't lock God in a closet. When Jesus was crucified, far as I can tell, Scripture tells us that the curtain that separated the holy holies from the rest was torn in two. God has been unleashed in our lives. It's not confined to sacred. You're not here today because it's another part of your life. You're here because it's a central part of our life. Jesus colors us from the inside out, and he colors us white as snow. And he says, "You'll be my witnesses wherever you go." And you are sacred. Second thing I don't understand is that worshiping anything other than God is idolatry. Even good things. See, Stephen's charge against the Sanhedrin was not that they that they had a, a that there was anything wrong with, with the temple. is that they were worshiping it. They thought because they had the temple, they had God. You can have a building all you want. God is the one that makes the temple holy. And God showed up. Jesus, God, took on flesh, walked in the temple, and they rejected God himself. They threw him out of the temple. You understand that, that they say that... You, You can't accept the space if you reject the one who makes it holy. They worship the wrong things. They were upset that Stephen was speaking against the temple while they themselves were maligning and stopping the work of the Messiah. We have a tendency, a draw to idolatry. It's not just bad things that are idols. It's anything. You know what an idol is? It's what your life revolves around. Right? It's like the sun is like what, what the earth worships. Right? So, so whatever your life revolves around, that's, that's what worship is all about. Right? Whatever at that center, whatever impacts the trajectory of your time, trajectory of your thinking, the trajectory of your schedule, whatever impacts your life, whatever your life revolves around, that is what you worship. And idolatry is if that thing is anything other than God. And so, here's the thing, it, it can be good things. For, for the Sanhedrin, it was the temple. They were more upset about the temple than they were about the Messiah. They had the wrong center. And Stephen is doing his best to wake them up. But we have the same thing in our life, though, don't we? We might not put the temple there, but, but how about religion? Or how about family? Family's a good thing, but it can't be the center. How about our health or our wealth or our power or our success? Anything in your life that is at the very center, what everything else revolves around, that is what you worship. Now, here's the thing it's hard sometimes for us to navigate what is that center thing. So, Scripture gives us two objective tests for us to look into our life. And they will make you uncomfortable because they make me uncomfortable too. But the reason that they are there is because they are not manipulatable. Our hearts can trick us, can't they? We can say, I'm following Jesus, but our life can look horrible and we're not really. Scripture gives us two tests. The first thing it says to look for is your time. How are you investing your time? Because time is your life, isn't it? How you invest your time is how you're spending your life. And God has given us something, a marker in our day, in our week, that we can look to. To say, are we keeping Him first and most? And it's called a Sabbath. That's what it's about. A Sabbath is not sitting in some space, singing hymns all day. A Sabbath is taking a day and separating them from all the other days and keeping it different, holy, separate. A day where you do what refreshes you. It might be fishing or cooking or playing video games or talking to your mom on the phone. I don't know what it is, but whatever it is. You say, I'm not working this day. This is not about toil. This is a time that I'm setting aside because God told me to. I'm putting him first. You can look into your day timer and you can say, is God first here? It's the very first unmovable rock. For me and my wife and my son, we have to, this hard. it says to keep the Sabbath holy. It, it means that. It's hard to do. Uh, my son plays baseball and all these travel teams, right? A lot of times they play big games on Sundays, and guess what? We have an immovable rock there. And so he doesn't, there's a sacrifice, right? There, there are things that we cannot do because we have to make space for God first. But because that's what's impacting the trajectory of our life, we know that's what we're keeping center. you got to look at your schedule. The second thing that Scripture tells us to look at what's at center of our life is how we spend our money, right? Because money is also part of our life. It's an important thing. And so Scripture said, you to look there because you're going to see your priorities and how you spend. And that's the importance of a tithe. Not giving God the last, but giving God the first. Just like in our schedule, we start with our Sabbath, in your budget, our budget, we start with the tithe. And it took a while for us to get there. It was a step of huge faith, saying, God, we're going to trust you. Before everything else comes in, we're trusting you first. These two are, start, are, are beginning points. They move on from there. You know, you can be more generous with your time than just having a Sabbath and giving that to God. I've discovered once I started keeping a Sabbath that I found more and more time that I was able to donate to God and to give to God gladly. To be able to have time to spend with other people and to help others and be less selfish with my life. Same thing with our tithe. We started there and then God shows that we could be far more generous than I ever thought we'd be able to. But we started there. This was two things that God has given us as an anchor, as a point, an objective point to look at our lives and say, God, am I really keeping you? Are you really at center? Now, can you have a tithe and can you have a Sabbath and be legalistic and not love Jesus? Absolutely. You can. We don't want to go there. But I can also say this, that you can't truly be following Jesus the way that he tells us to, to obey all of his commands if you don't have those in your life. So start there. Those are the two markers, and they help us know where we're at. Now, here's the thing. I might have said that, and it might make you feel like, oh, I'm, I wish you didn't say that. It makes me angry at you, Aaron. I want to understand the third point here is this We have a tendency to get this wrong. It's not just you, and it's not just me. As people, we have a tendency to get it wrong. That's why we need a Savior. Right? That's why discipleship is not a, a jump in the pool, boom, I'm perfect and sanctified. That's why it says we learn to obey Jesus in all things. It is a process. It is steps. We had Stephen talk to the Sanhedrin and he said, listen, guys, we're no better than our forefathers in the desert. We're no better than our forefathers who had the very prophets before him. You guys missed it too, right? We're all in this. But we do have a choice to wake up. We can live different. We can see the evidence of God and, and what he's doing now today, and we can choose to live differently than those who made mistakes. That's what we have. You can look in your own life today and say, I have, maybe I look into my schedule, and I look into my bank account, and I say, you know what? God has not been my priority. Don't feel shame about that. Feel repentance. Say, God, I want to be better. It takes time. By the way, when my wife and I first started tithing, you know It took us a while. We started at one percent, then two, then three, then four, then five. We've started up. When we started doing a Sabbath, I try to take a Sabbath, and everything blew a time manager. I learned how to put things away. I learned how to say no to some stuff to create space in it. I started taking steps to faithfulness because we have a tendency to not get this right. That's why it's in there to say this is—you're not going to accidentally have a Sabbath. You understand that? Like no one has ever accidentally just fell into faithfulness. You have a tendency to work get to get it wrong. Know that that's why the God's grace is there for you. He loves you so much. He's not there saying, you got it wrong and I'm going to get you. He's saying, I'm inviting you to a better way of living. I'm inviting you to freedom. I'm inviting you to be holy. and He's going to give you the power and the capacity to do it. He gives you the grace to take the next step. And that's all you need to do is just take the next step. Every day, just another step of faithfulness. So what are those next steps going to be for you? Well, if you have a hard time thinking of them, I have some ideas. So if you take out your connection card, on the back side, there are some next steps. And that's all they are. I'm not talking about huge leaps. I'm not talking about just jumping in and going and so. One of the best things you can do in discipleship is just be one step outside your comfort zone, just one step closer to Jesus, right? And then he's going to keep moving, and you just take a next step next to him, right? That's all we got to do. It's not a sprint. It's not, you're not leaping a mile, just the next step. But get into the habit of always taking one more step Towards love and grace and obedience and mercy. And some ideas that you might want to do this week. The first thing, maybe this week, your next step is to memorize Acts 1-8. To move it from being this sacred thing that's stuck in a sacred book that has nothing to do with your life. You remove it from that and realize that there is no such thing as a sacred space and a secular space. If you are made holy, then this is for you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be his witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This is live in you. This is life itself. Maybe you begin by taking God's word and planting it in your heart. You start thinking about this and you start praying about it. You say, God, show me how does this apply, right? Maybe that's where you begin this week is to start with Acts 1.8. Or maybe for you, it's to get into God's word. Read Acts 6 and 7. That you've seen what has happened, You see the testimony of Stephen, the first martyr, the first witness for the faith. Spend time in God's Word. I didn't preach everything in Acts 6 and 7 because you didn't want to spend all afternoon with me. So read it. Or maybe this. We've been challenging you all through the series to pray for three. What does that mean? Three people. When it says you're going to be his witness, you know most of those people you're be witnesses to. Right? Start with your Jerusalem. Start with those that you know. Who is it in your life that doesn't know the Lord? That who lives still in bondage? To sin and to darkness and to doubt and to fear. You know these people. Actually, your seats. Some of those. There's, I didn't make enough of these cards, but there's, it says I will pray for. It's an orange card. It's got three names, and I would show you mine. It's my office because I pray. There's three folks that I'm praying for right now. You say I'm going to be praying for. Them. This is what I would ask you to pray. This is what I'm praying for those people. First one is that, that God will prepare their heart to receive the gospel. I'll prepare it so they want to receive it. You don't want to push something on them. The second thing is pray that God would provide an opportunity at just the right time, to be able to share your faith. And the third thing is eh, is when that time comes that He gives you the wisdom and the courage to share, to be one who's got a witness, to say, God has changed me in my life, (laughs) and I can share it with you. Maybe that's what you do, pray for three, or maybe what you're going to do is you start by saying, you know what, I'm going to start taking a Sabbath. I'm going to tithe. I'm going to make this and I'll tell you, this is going to be hard. These are, steps of, these are objective steps of faithfulness. And therefore, you will receive all kinds of resistance from yourself, and from the enemy, and all kinds of things. If you're going to take those, let me know. So I'm going to be praying for you. right? If you would like some help with that, this is one of the things as a pastor that I do. I'd be happy to help you, counsel you, walk with you, because you're not going to do it perfectly the first time. But if you say, I'm willing to take a next step, and these are the two areas that I know that I'm not, at least starting there, then let me help you. Let the church help you. Say, we're going to begin. Maybe there's something else that God is telling you to do. That's what the other thing is for. Always listen to God. Let me know as your pastor, I will pray for you. If you've got another commitment, certainly have an opportunity to share that. If you have a prayer request and you haven't written it down, this is your last chance because we're going to take our tithes and our offerings in just a minute. So please, uh, once you complete these, take your tithes, um, the offering envelopes, as well as these, drop those in the offering basket as they're passed. Uh, We're going to have our worship team come up. They're going to close us with a worship song. Before they do, however, I'd like to pray for you and for our commitments. So let's do that now. Heavenly Father... Thank you for those who brave the snow today to be here to worship you, to bring you glory and honor. You deserve it. You are the holy maker. You are the one who makes us holy. You're the God who can work anywhere, anytime to bring about great things. Now God, there is no space in this world that is off limits for you. There is no heart that is outside of your dominion and your domain that you can change anyone. You can use anyone at any time. And God, you are always doing good things. You are a God of love and justice and of mercy. You're a God of peace. God, I pray that you would bless those that are here today with all of those things, that your love, your justice, your mercy, and your peace would wash upon them this week. May they be a shield and a guard over them. Lord, help us that are here today to take these commitments and these, that we've made and to keep them in a way that honors you. Father, we pray for faith and faithfulness in that. Lord, we also pray for our tithes and our offerings. Would you please bless those to build your kingdom in us, through us, for your glory. We pray all this in the beautiful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.